right, welcome back to the Art Bystander. I'm Roland Flip Kretschmar and um, this episode is, is a special one. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. I have uh, two fantastic guests on the show, Ashik and Koshik Saman. Uh, I will soon let them do a formal introduction, but they started Seaprint um, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, which is basically a non-commercial initiative to bring forward contemporary art and also highlight the diversity of artistic practices. And they have the online publication, a printed publication, and a lot of other things going on, basically. So we're going to speak about that. Ashik and Koshik are also curators for a fantastic show opening up very soon, March 16th, uh, in Stockholm, Sweden, at Billenius Gallery. And it's a group show with a long number of artists. So Sally J. Han... Nam Kim, Sahana Ramakrishnan, Ming Wang, Caroline Wong, Justin Yoon, and Rachelle Yoon. Hope the pronunciations were okay. And the show is called You Were Bigger Than the Sky, You Were More Than Just a Short Time. Now, Ashik and Koshik, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roland. Thank you for having us. It's really nice to be speaking to you. We've also been looking forward to this conversation, so the, f- the feeling is mutual. Fantastic. So it was quite a long intro, mouthful also, of name-dropping in the intro. Uh, if we start with the, the show at Belenius, and then we can come back to, to you guys a bit later on. So tell me more about the show and, uh, you know, how it came up as an idea and... Uh, yeah, what, what also visitors will expect, uh, what, what they can expect to see then uh, from March 16th onwards. I mean, I would say that this is a show that we've been wanting to do for a long, long time. I think between the two of us as curators and also as art writers, I think from the sort of offset of Seaprint, we, we, st- we actually started Seaprint 10 years ago. So we're celebrating our 10th anniversary this year in, tw- in 2023. I think even, I mean, on a personal note, we've always been interested in figurative painting and I mean, there's definitely been a shift or, I mean, figurative pain. I mean, everything is cyclical in art, of course. I mean, things come and go in cycles. And I mean, when we started out in 2013, it was very evident that abstract art and abstract painting was still having, enjoying a sort of momentum in art. And I mean, since I think in the last, I guess the last half of, um, the second half of the 2010s, I mean, figurative painting has really sort of emerged very strongly again. I mean, if you look at, or if you attend any big sort of major art fair, whether it's Fries or Art Basel, or if you sort of visit any sort of blue chip art gallery wherever in the world, I mean, you will definitely see a strong representation of kind of figurative painting. And it's not just that it's figurative painting. I mean, it's also a question of what figurative painters you're actually seeing. I mean, I, I mean, for a while in the last... Um, in the sort of second half of the last decade, I mean, there was definitely like a strong wave of queer painters. I mean, you definitely were seeing sort of the emergence of sort of, especially male, sort of, and also quite white sort of queer painters. And then it was on to diasporic sort of African sort of painters or African American artists or sort of black painters. And now I think in the recent couple of years, it feels there's feels like. There's been a bit of a shift where you're seeing also more presence of Southeast Asian sort of painters or mm. painters of Southeast Asian sort of descent um, or South sort of South Asian in terms of the sort of um, the Indian subcontinent. But at the core, I think the moment that figurative painting has been having, it's been it's been quite consistent, and you could say that it's been long-standing at this point. And mm-hmm. I mean, I was in, I was doing a gallery stroll in Chelsea, sort of in New York in January, and I had, I mean, we used to go to New York quite regularly in the past. I mean, there was a bit of a hiatus uh, for a few, few years, and and now I've been going back again. And I mean, there's this moment where you're like, wow, I mean, how much figurative painting are we actually seeing? I mean, like mm-hmm. galleries that might not have been as prone to be showing figurative paint painting currently are doing that and I was also quite struck by the sort of presence of non-white sort of bodies in figurative painting which Mm -hmm. also is a result of um, a sort of increase of sort of non-white painters Um, and I think at the core this this exhibition we're doing it's um, it channels into that interest of 
highlighting that figurative painting is having a moment internationally currently and has been having a moment and continues to have all the while I don't really feel or we don't really feel that that has been so well represented in in the Stockholm art scene and I think it was the same thing when we started out 10 years ago there was like a certain kind of contemporary photography that channeled into I mean descendants of Nan Golden Wolfgang Tillmans that you saw mm-hmm. everywhere on social media and you also saw in other kind of places but you weren't seeing here and so when we did our first show, it sort of connected to a lack and the shortage we were experiencing. And similarly, this exhibition also kind of channels into a feeling of seeing a lot of figurative painting um, being championed in various sort of other art scenes and other kind of major art cities, but not really seeing it as much as you feel you should be here. So there is like that gap. Mm-hmm. And that's always been our um, incentive is always to kind of channel into gaps and try to kind of mend by creating bridges through our work. Hmm. Interesting backstory, and then let's get back to the show in a bit. But um, just curious, you, do you see then a connection you say between non-white artists and figurative pa- painting, or what, what's is is there a connection there, or did I just misinterpret your kind of? Uh... No, of course. I mean, I, I mean, it's it's not that. I mean, I think things are again like cyclical. I mean, it's not that figurative painting is anything novel in art it's just that things goes in trends and i think currently the sort of the big um i mean the big thing you're seeing in a lot of sort of in art a lot is figurative painting but only this time around i feel like the moment or the moment of figurative painting is being is sort of having is also creating it's increased sort of on a much larger grander scale than before like room for non-white painters and mm-hmm. as a result I mean it also impacts what bodies we're seeing in painting I mean I think it's not that you've it's not that you've never seen non-white sort of bodies in figurative painting it's just that currently I mean there's been galleries are championing sort of also non-white sort of artists on a much grander scale than before and as a, as a result that also impacts the motifs and like I think for example I mean it's e- I mean, when things change, I mean, it's really easy to forget how things used to be. Um, mm-hmm. You kind of normalize a certain kind of new standard. But I mean, 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, you weren't really seeing a lot of sort of mundane everyday scenes or scenarios of, of intimacy, romance, or just kind of everyday situations of lust or reverie or camaraderie. With, I mean, among non-white sort of bodies. I mean, you are really seeing that now a lot, yeah. but you weren't really seeing that in the past. And I think just because you are now, it, it's so easy to kind of forget what major change has actually happened from, you know, from a certain kind of point of time to now. But anybody who's been around for a while will know, I mean, this is a change and it's definitely being felt. And all it's not just being felt in what you're seeing and what you're being exposed to it, it also comes, it also kind of taps into commercial viability. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there, there will have been moments in, in history and time where galleries might have sort of said that, you know, this is not what collectors want. This is not, I mean, we can't sell this. There's not demand for it. But currently, I, I guess if you do look at gallery rosters and you do check um, what painters are sort of being hauled as, fast rising sort of promi- promising and prominent sort of painters I and mean, many of them are actually of non-white descent why do you think there was this kind of tipping point uh, maybe five ten years ago or maybe even less years ago um and, and i mean it, it's this kind of um hand or the egg situation you know is it demand that is driving or is it the emergence of of a new generation of artists but you know what can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on the mechanisms behind this change? Uh, I mean, it's not just in contemporary art. I mean, you see it across all kinds of media. I mean, representation is a really big thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it also kind of follows, as you were saying, the current, what is actually cha- happening in society. I mean, I also, I think something like BLM, for example. Yeah. I mean, like the, the, I mean, even though that's, I mean, that's a movement that came out of sort of traumatic sort of experiences and sort of injustice and sort of racial kind of violence. I mean once a movement like that sort of um, touches ground with like globally sort of across the board with a lot of people I mean you it's impossible not to kind of start thinking further and then you start thinking about well what other injustices do do we see in in various kind of domains and I think there was BLM definitely created a certain kind of pressure also in art for 
sort of any sort of um, party in art, whether you were like a gallerist, or you were like an institutional director, or to kind of also critically examine and introspectively look at your own operations and see sort of how what does representation kind of look like and how are we who are we actually kind of exhibiting and who who is informed by our scope of operations and I think that's so I think this uh, change and shift it definitely also overlaps and intersects with changes in society and um, so it's probably not I mean it's not a coincidence but I think also I mean again things things are cyclical I mean things will always reappear, emerge, um, post-internet art was a big thing for a while, it, we'll probably come back to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, like abstract white paint, I mean, for a while, every other gallery was like looking for this kind of Dashno type of sort of mm-hmm. white male, marketable sort of like hip sort of kind of guy making certain kind of mm-hmm. Dan Colin type of paintings that is like really uninteresting to us. But for a while, that was really being championed a lot. And now it's not that such painters are not being, you know, exhibited but I think if you also look at a certain kind of generation of artists that were very prominent around the end of the 2000s and early 2010s I mean they're not necessarily doing the big institutional shows right now mm-hmm. um, can I ask you I mean just a amateur theory here but <laughs> just, you know observing it from the outside a bit hence the name art bystander by the way since I'm not involved in the industry as such um, it seems to me that this accelerated during the pandemic. So you, you had basically both the artists uh, and independent galleries and curators pushing out, let's say, uh, art or, you know, exhibit showing art a lot online on Instagram and kind of, you know, sp- having a lot of time to spend to, to market themselves basically on, on, on social media. And then on, on the other side, you had a lot of, you know, collectors or <clears throat> even you know amateurs kind of interested in art spending more time online and also maybe then having more time to discover something new going beyond the traditional blue ship galleries and uh, i don't know if that is a correct observation or not but um, it it feels to me that there there is a connection there between uh, the emergence of or the boom of these, let's say, um, more independent artists, independent galleries, curators, and, and also coming from other parts of the world than, than maybe North America or Europe. I mean, I would say that for sure there is some kind of connection because we were very much confined with spaces being closed, obviously due to pandemic. Uh, we did definitely spend more time online and on social media. So I, I, social media has definitely facilitated... Um, exhibiting the works for many artists mm-hmm. uh, also with art fairs having i mean all the major art fairs did their online mm-hmm. what would they call it again like the online viewing rooms, or, or viewing rooms yeah. and, no but I, I also agree i mean i think what was interesting uh, uh, with what happened during the pandemic was for like the brief you know moment in time it's sort of democ- i mean it, it was like a democratization of the tools accessible for mm-hmm. you know art sort of Art, um, how do you say, art platforms, artists, initiatives. I mean, like everybody were, was, were, everybody was resorted to the kind of same measures. I mean, like whether you were Gaugasian or you were a small so independent true. gallery somewhere in an obscure city, we all had to kind of resort to the same modus as to kind of present. Yeah. And I think, yeah. and because we were so confined, I mean, I guess maybe instead of going to certain kind of galleries inside your own usual kind of habits and staying within your usual kind of like patterns i guess people were online a lot more and one thing leads to another and you're on you're on like a online search mode a lot more than you are within your accustomed sort of like pattern so it makes sense that maybe that sort of scope kind of created um opportunities for people to kind of look beyond you know the usual kind of scoutings and usual platforms to kind of find and i think well i mean there's always these, how do you say, uh, parallel functioning sort of factors that kind of impact a turnout. I mean, I think it's difficult to kind of pinpoint one thing over the other, but I do think the sort of maybe a combination of like global movements that sort of created awareness on a grander scale in connection to a time where everybody was online a lot more in sort of like a search hunt mode where um, there was much more time for that, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
all of these things have probably impacted changes that sort of came out on the opposite end of like a tunnel once we sort of came out of like a how do you say like this sort of pandemic situation being confined to a more home domestic setting and sort of once getting to be out out in sort of physical settings again I think that's uh, it's probably a correct observation yeah. I mean I've also thought about it but I think these things probably have overlapped and sort of intersected in creating a change I mean I mm-hmm. for, for me, I feel like so clearly because we've talked about it um, I think something that <clears throat> comes to mind is the way we always find artists through social media. I'm guessing like some galleries probably did too. Not being able to do studio visits, not being able to like travel to meet artists. I'm sure also like galleries and curators have been actively more looking on social media just the way you and I have. Yeah, I mean, but also, I mean, of course, I mean, I think something like BLM 100% must have impacted the way people kind of like direct their gaze and to what I mean if mm-hmm. it's, it's possible to have a, a global movement like like that sort of moving into your your sort of everyday kind of um, setting and being like part of like the everyday conversation and not looking into your own domain which would be contemporary art and seeing like how what sort of injustices do we have have here and like what can we do to change and and that sort of movement also creates a prerogative and entitlement for many people whether you're like directly you know how do you if you're directly informed by blm as a black person or like a non i mean like i think it just creates creates an awareness where people start directing more of an entitlement to kind of mm-hmm. claim space and to be granted space and like one injustice one sort of injustice being kind of highlighted also creates scope for people to kind of critically and introspectively and extrospectively kind of look at structural kind of flaws and situations that needs needs to be changed and I think I mean pleasantly it's it's happening now it's really difficult to kind of pinpoint exactly why that happened but these are probably factors that have, have impacted okay so back to the show then so opening March 16th uh, could you um, <clears throat> explain a bit more kind of the the setup for the show, uh, how you went about to curate it, and you, you know your relationship with Niklas Bilianius and or the gallery itself, and what uh, visitors will expect kind of going there. Sure, I mean we've followed the gallery for years. <clears throat> Ever since uh, doing like gallery visits, we're very in tune with the gallery program, <clears throat> and then we've been in touch with Katarina, who's one of the directors of the gallery mm-hmm. for a while. Um, Not a while. It's been like ten years. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've known them for years. Um, so I mean, basically, it's a group show with seven artists, artists that we've been following most on social media, the works that we appreciate. Um, I mean, I think at the core, we knew we wanted to do uh, an exhibition of figurative sort of painting. And I think that intersected with the gallery having an interest to work towards an international market again a lot, a lot more because the gallery has... I don't want to speak on behalf of the gallery, but the way I perceive it, I mean, this show is definitely a, a sort of a move forward towards uh, working a lot more with international artists again, mm-hmm. which the gallery have done over time. But it's also focused quite a lot on strong Swedish kind of more senior kind of yep. artistries in recent kind of years. But I mean, for us, we always actively on a daily basis will um, look into artists. We'll, we're always since we're both curating, also running art magazine both in print and um, in an online sort of form. I mean, we're always in tune, in touch with artists on an everyday basis. So I think we knew we wanted to do a figurative-based, uh, um, figurative painting-based sort of exhibition. And I think we also knew from the that it would be an exhibition of diasporic painters, or at least non-white painters, to kind of make room for certain kind of artists in Sweden, in our local art scene. Um, mm-hmm. That was the idea, and the idea was also to highlight painters that are sort of on that cusp, the cusp of really breaking out, mm-hmm. um, artists that we would say are on our radar, artists that we feel are very likely to um, kind of emerge as like a next generation, future generation sort of um, painters. And so one sort of parameter that sort of factored the equation was that they were going to be, that it would be mostly 
or exclusively non-white painters, um, and then also artists on that sort of cusp, and and also just kind of getting to show painting that highlights very mundane scenes, like sort of paintings that celebrate community, celebrate friendship. lust, friendship, camaraderie, mm-hmm. love, everyday scenes. I mean, just sort of... Um, the sort of scenes you've always been used to seeing white bodies being placed in in painting, but you've seen non-white bodies way too less. And I think that was like a starting point for the exhibition. So technically the, the exhibition started out as a exclusive figurative sort of painting exhibition. And then we decided to add um, a sculptor um, in, in the exhibition. And so, I mean, the paintings are, many of the sort of the paintings that we are showing, they definitely have an air of endearing humor. I mean, they're quite fun and sort of lustful and lively too. and there's like a lot of colors. I think the animated quality of Rachel Yoon's sculptures will really kind of create this holistic kind of experience in the gallery, in the gallery room where the sculptures sort of accentuate and add to the paintings. And so it will, I mean, it will be fun. I think it, I was kind of finishing the last bits of the exhibition statement just the other day and it sort of really comes down to um, like celebration of community. I mean, sort of, and also like interaction of bodies in a sort of sensual or lustful kind of way. And I mean, at a certain point, it feels almost like kind of crass and brash to talk about color all the time, non-white, I mean, to emphasize, but that's a reality, like you have to. I mean, the reality is that what is happening in art now is rebutting the historical whiteness in art and this mm-hmm. exhibition is also an act of that in a in what is still a very white art scene of mostly white art people kind of working in various kind of machineries for it where we would still my brother and I are two of the fewer people that sort of by being here by sort of working here are changing the face of the local art scene mm-hmm. from very white to a little less white and so for us it would not make sense to not sort of make room for other non-white sort of people through the work that we do and if we're working with a commercial gallery that has you know sort of possibilities and influential pull and clout we will use that to the benefit of other non-white people and that's just the way it is do do you feel that the collectors in sweden are um let's say, ready for it or knowledgeable enough to kind of understand what you, you want to do here? What, what? I, th- I think, that's I think collectors really... are very... I think collectors are a group that they'll... Like, not to generalize, but you have... We, we definitely talked about it just the other, other yeah. week in connection to another exhibition and based on what sold in the exhibition did not sell. Mm-hmm. But, but I think without... I don't want... I mean, it's difficult to overgeneralize, but I do think a certain kind of branch of collectors they run a line with what is sort of commercially currently you know being valued and priced and cherished and if that's like it's a flipping kind of situation i mean it's not i mean of course a lot of of collectors buy with their heart but they also buy with their eyes and ears and heart i mean Mm -hmm. you can you can find really nice narratives among collectors about how they choose to buy and what they like and not like but in reality if if Sally J. Han is currently being championed as a super prom- prominent sort of artist and would have like a commercial kind of market um, in a certain kind of place in the world, it's there will definitely be collectors locally that will be impacted mm-hmm. and be impressionable to that sort of um, to that sort of stature and standing of an artist. So, uh, and the real collectors are obviously um, uh, global citizens, right? Traveling and and, and have pretty good. Art. Let's say ear to the to the market uh, globally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, like I, I do. Th- I do think this is. I mean, the, the number of collectors in our local art scene are probably not that. In cons- I mean, considerable in considerable numbers, it's probably not really a huge group. And yeah, I mean, I guess as you said, collectors are global citizens. They are impressionable to what is happening on a larger kind of scale. I mean, if they go to Art Basel and something mm-hmm. is, something is currently being sort of hailed and hauled out as, you know, the sort of the now situation. I mean, I don't think they will be ignorant to that, but I mean, time will, time will tell. Um, I think Swedish people in general are very impressionable to trends and impressionable to wanting to kind of sort of align with 
like what is a zeitgeist aligned with what is the current, what is the now. So in that sense, we're very malleable as people. Mm-hmm. Um, like we do, I, I guess we do have an understanding of sales of this exhibition. It's not, uh, I mean, we're not, we're not galleries. I mean, we're curators here. We've been given hundred or hundred percent artistic freedom to sort of do the exhibition we want, which has been like a condition on our end is to sort of not have the gallery impact our choices. I mean, the gallery can kind of um, handle business side of things, and we can mm-hmm. handle artistic side of things, even though, of course, it's been a very nice collaborative situation, and they are, the two gallery directors are extremely sort of... Um, artistically, they're very intelligent, both of them, so it's been a very nice conversation, and we've had nice sort of dialogue from the, be- from the beginning, and I think... But we've also sort of, from the off- offset, been granted sort of the privilege of doing the show we want to do without, without compromises uh, or con- consideration of sort of commercial nature, which we've, I don't think we would have wanted that. We're not, I mean, the platform we run is very non-commercial. So when we do an exhibition together with a commercial entity, it will be very important for us that we can retain the sort of artistic freedom that we want. Um, but I, I'm going to say that it's very possible that this is an exhibition that will be commercially very successful without saying too much. <laughs> Good. So, uh, one last question, then we'll move on to to you guys uh, to unbox a bit who you are, etc. But um, the title, you were bigger than the sky. You were more than just a short time. Can you uh, explain? I think the title, in this context, it says a lot. It it it, ha- it sort of informs a lot. One thing is that it comes from Taylor Swift's new album. Uh, there's a song called "Bigger Than the Sky," but the chorus line is "You were bigger than the sky. You were more than just a short time." One thing is that it is our 10th year and I think we decided last year, we, last year we had like a year where we uh, focused a lot on the overlap between contemporary art and sports just mm-hmm. to find a different sort of curatorial scope to work around as not to kind of reproduce the same sort of narratives every other curators are working with. And this year we said, let's be very in tune with pop culture and let's definitely, which I think we've always been, we've always been very in tune with music and finding kind of ways to kind of find, let music find find a ground into our work but I think we said Taylor Swift she's like this kind of pop cultural icon right now she's a brilliant lyricist Attic is also a really big fan I'm, I'm a fan of sorts <laughs> like, let's let, let's let Taylor Swift be part of our exhibition one way or another next year just because we, just because we can because we have <laughs> we can do that and it's also like a statement that everything is possible and yeah. Taylor Swift might not be like considered to be the most highbrow for everybody, but but this is like that moment where you make a you take a stand and make a statement by kind of bringing somebody so pop culture into. I love that. Uh, so that was one thing. The other thing is that the title itself actually says something about the moment, long-standing moment that figurative painting has been having. Like it's not just been like this two, three-year kind of run where every commercial gallery or like every other institution are calibrating their programs towards figure to painting, it's been a very long run now. I mean, I think that you started seeing that change, you know, where certain kind of artists that we used to monitor when they were part of Brooklyn, like local Brooklyn art scenes, like in the early 2010s, when they started kind of finding exhibitions kind of scope within the Perrotins or the Caucasians or the Anton Kearns. I mean, there was definitely a moment where you're like, oh, wow, like these artists that we used to kind of follow few years ago, they're really kind of moving into the rosters of various sort of first years mm-hmm. of galleries. And I think that, that it, we're not seeing that change. I mean, I think it, it just, I mean, that sort of, um, that sort of momentum is consistent. It's growing and it's, it's continuous. I think the title also humorously alludes to, mm-hmm. to figure the painting having a momentum. Also, it connects back to the first exhibi- exhibition we did. Um, the first exhibition we did almost 10 years ago was called Yesterday we wanted to be the sky, which is almost like a title that alludes to some aspirations and sort of like, like a quality of you know ambition and drive and of wanting to sort of claim space and have space. And now, sort of some ten years later, I we kind of thought that the Taylor Swift title connected back to something once it's a fact, once something actually has happened. And I think it also, I guess, on a personal, connects back to having been around for ten years and having sort of built that chair. I mean, nobody sort of, I don't, we, we came from the outside. Nobody really 
extended invitation. We always joke about having built the chair and added it to the table. And <laughs> once the chair was there, it was cemented. It was not going to be moved. And so I think that title works on a personal level. It also works in relation to figurative painting. Um, there's uh, some poetry in it that also, and also motif-wise, we also actually use that title in the selections of the artworks to kind of find uh, a sort of alignment between the, the words in the title and quite a few of the sort of paintings in the, in the exhibition. So I think the title, even though it's long, it will resonate also when you see the exhibition. All right, so thank you for sharing um, both the backstory about the show, um, but also <clears throat> more information about the show, which will open at Billionaires March 16th. Uh, all the information will be in the show notes. But now Ashik and Koshik, two brothers, as you say, cemented role in the Swedish art scene, at least nowadays. But if we go back 10 years, even longer, I mean, what's your backstory? If we really go back in time, educationally, we're not trained art historians. Myself, I studied business. Mm -hmm. So my background is more in accounting and finance. I also have a different background. I studied, I studied law and mm -hmm. we were all, I mean, we were always interested in, I mean, we were interested in contemporary art quite long before we actually started working around it. When we moved to, to Stockholm some 12, 13 years ago, following sort of graduation from like university, I mean, we started collecting a little bit to the extent of our abilities. I think that was our first entry into an art scene was by, we, we lived together, we shared a flat together, and we had some disposable income that could be allocated for art. And there was definitely, I think initially it was definitely like for many, I mean, I wouldn't say that we're collecting today or that we were ever very serious with, coll with collecting as an interest. It was more a question of finding an intimate relationship to art. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of many interests people have collecting is you can approach art and arts on a very intimate level that is quite personal, where it's not a generic report that every, every other person kind of shares with an artwork or an artist. It's, it's something that is a, a bit more customized because there is that exclusivity in art where maybe unless it's sort of limited sort of, you know, fine art prints. I mean, maybe there's that one original authored kind of artwork that you live together with. It's part of your kind of everyday domestic kind of setting. So I think, I think that's what it stemmed down to, like finding a way to kind of be very close to art. And then... And where did you move from? You said... Uh, from Uppsala. Uppsala. Uppsala, okay. So that's where you... So we kind of grew up, up in like this academic bubble of Uppsala mm -hmm. and sort of... I mean, I think we parallel kind of both knew that we wanted to work in the arts. Like, the collecting gradually took us. I knew that I, I'm currently working in-house finance at Accelerator, like Stockholm University's mm -hmm. art space. I'm, I am still doing finance, but I really quickly knew that I wouldn't want to be doing traditional accounting at a generic company. Like, being around art, I quite quickly gathered that I wanted to be closer to art. And I think parallel... I, but also... I think we all, I mean, I think we knew, I mean, like we would finish our degrees, we would finish our studies, but we, I think there was, there was such a clear feeling the moment we moved here that we would venture closer towards contemporary art. And maybe there was that parental kind of, you know, narrative where you have parents that, you know, kind of prompt you in a certain kind of direction where we might have under other circumstances, you know, gone into art much earlier, but then you have parents who have like a different sort of vision for you that they might sort of plant as a seed when you're a kid and then you're so disappointed now <laughs> that you're not no, they're actually, uh, actually, I think they're actually really happy and really proud <laughs> but, but it's like it's you know it's like it was a part of, it's kind of like this kind of interesting sort of dynamic situation where we have parents that are super cultural and artsy but still it was important for the kids to venture into more sort of stable sort of kind of like stable path in life that kind of really kind of, you know, enables financial kind of security. Um, but they are definitely super, I mean... I mean, they are followers. I mean, they read the interviews. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they also go to show, I mean, they're also, like, really interested in art at this point and go to shows with or without us. But, but so I will think, I meet them at the opening then? Uh, you, they're traveling, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you would normally have found them at the opening. Okay. I mean, they do, they do come to our they openings. They do come to our openings. Okay. But, but I think what happened is that we started collecting a little bit and then you realize, yes, it's really fun to, but like, it's really like, I also work as a curator at an art institution in Stockholm now. And it's not that I don't buy art on occasion. I'll buy 
an artwork by an artist I work with because it becomes like a memory of that report that was struck with that artist or it becomes a memory of a certain period in time where I was closely collaborating with somebody. But I feel like that material desire to own art, it doesn't exist on the same to the same extent. And but mm -hmm. the reason why it existed initially was because you wanted to have intimate rapport with art. And once you identify that that's also what it was about, and you're like 25 years, years old spending money that you don't actually have on art, there's a moment of kind of crisis where you're like, there has to be other ways to be close to art and work intimately with and around art without having to own it. Mm. And that, that's when we started thinking along the lines of how can we contribute to the art scene? What are our qualities that we can sort of contribute with and we'd always been writing I'd always been writing I think I was already my first job in law was already as a editor at a publishing house mm -hmm. I was already writing before and I think personally I was really at the time I was doing like hardcore numbers I really missed like creative projects that we've always had and I really missed writing so um, and then we looked at like okay but what what does the sort of media mediascape look like in Sweden and mm -hmm. Okay, uh, you have a few dailies that are very influential when it comes to, um, that has a possible kind of pull and possible impact on audience turnout. That's two or three dailies, and they were allocating less and less space already back 10 years ago to contemporary art. It's even less now. Um, and in a hierarchy, I mean, you have theater, literature. I mean, literature for sure is like at the top of the hierarchy. Then you have theater even poetry and even sort of contemporary dance is like sometimes feels much more sort of omnipresent in the dailies than contemporary art, which is more like a once a week sort of situation. It's, it's, um, it's so weird actually when you, when you really <laughs> put it out like that. It's really limited. If yeah. anything, it's almost become worse. I mean, now there are you know, podcasts like this one, but, um, but I think the idea was also to kind of create the magazine that we wanted to read ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because even back then, we were very in tune with things happening in Lagos, Nigeria, Bangladesh, where our parents are from. But we couldn't read about any of these occurrences, in, definitely not in the Swedish dailies. So I think that was kind of like the basic framework. Let's just create the magazine and do the features and highlight the artists that we don't really get to read about. Yeah, I think if I think that was the end. That I think that was that was like a starting point was to kind of create a magazine online first um, to use English as a language because it creates a much larger reach uh, yeah. and it also allows to be not provincial. And I think we felt like Swedish art scene felt so provincial uh, around two thousand tens. It felt even more provincial between two thousand two thousand ten. It still feels provincial in the sense that there is definitely an emphasis on the local when it comes to media coverage. Um, mm. And it's a and good point. I actually w wanted to ask you both about your, your view on the kind of the, the Swedish art scene. But I mean, like, it's, it's not that it's, it's not that we don't have international sort of fixtures here. It's not that we don't have like galleries or platforms that are that bridge or, you know, that, be that become that sort of window into what is happening sort of on a more cutting edge sort of like, you know, kind of scale like internationally but it's it's too little to really feel that Sweden is or like the local arts in Stockholm is very international and I think media media wise it, it that hasn't really changed and we also felt like emerging artists were not really being allocated space in media coverage aside from that token one annual review of the grad shows that mm. that's like one situation where you would read about emerging artists but you would never read about here's 10 emerging artists that are coming out of like the local art schools you know keep an eye on them like that sort of feature never really still doesn't happen and so we so we had some sort of ideas on what uh online magazine should kind of uh, what interest they should channel into um so we just kind of la we just launched it in 2013 and said, let's do it quietly. Let's let's do something where we don't have to honk, toad our own horn about it. Let's just quietly introduce it, and people can organically find it. We're not going to do... It's not about us. It's about the artist and art. And it also has to be considered that when we started it, it was really kind of in the aftermath of influencer culture, of the 2000... Like, statement influencer culture, of people kind of creating platforms to make a name for themselves. And we said... This is not going to be about us. This is not going to mm -hmm. be a me, you, us. It's about they and them. 
And that's something we were very consistent about in the beginning. And there has been a change since, and I, th I think we should get into why that happened. But in the early years, it was really about the artist. And I think uh, we didn't necessarily feel like we had to kind of take center stage as with our own faces, with our own names more than necessary. I think we just started kind of, um, I think we just kind of started signing our text with our own individual names like two, three years ago. And mm -hmm. Okay. In the early days, you, we said we can have one image of us per year. Like when, when, the, when the platform has celebrates another kind of year in life, we can do like a team image of just to kind of remember, <laughs> remind people that there are actual people working on this, these contests on a daily basis, not like a hmm. machine. It's interesting. Or I never thought about that, but that's uh, yeah, it's a very but I think it, subtle, but beautiful way of kind of... But I think we, I think we knew that it has to be selfless. Like we, ca you can't just, like you can't be so boastful or so, like self-consumed to sort of create a platform. I mean, like, Roland, maybe that's what you're doing now. No, I'm, kidding. I'm just kidding. No, but listen, I think uh, you know all, all approaches are great if we're here to yeah. promote art, right? Yeah. Sure. No, no, you're right. I mean, yeah. It was a joke. But what I, mean, what I mean is, when we started yeah. out, it just kind of felt necessary for the platform to be. Mm about other people and to, for us to adopt a selfless approach. And then that will, it will change over time. The, as your platform grows, as it gains more traction, becomes more, like you have to own your success, you have to own your narrative as well. At a certain point we realized if we want a change, if we're talking about, we want to impact the makeup of the local art scene, you want it to be less white, you want to make room for, you know, more non-white, artists you also have to sort of almost be like a poster person of that change because there yeah. was a feeling okay we are two people that are non we're two brown people here two people of bangladeshi descent uh, we are absolutely sort of um, commanding a sort of kind of stage and influence like if we don't show our faces and don't own that like how will that change manifest the, the change no, is happening yeah. you have to yeah. sort of be the change you're talking about mm. if I mean, so I think we all, at a certain point, five years into our 10, we were like, okay, we need to be a, a little bit more visible alongside the platform and we need to maybe sort of be poster people for it. And but I think maybe, isn't it easier also to grow the platform? I mean, just uh, kind of uh, to comment <laughs> your comment there. And, you know, I, last year I did nine episodes where I didn't promote myself. I basically just promoted artists or the curators or the, the galleries I had on the show. But I noticed that, now it's easier to get attention. It, it's, it's kind of weird, but it, it seems to me that if you kind of have one point of fixture, which in this case then is me because I'm, I'm kind of leading the, 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 the show, it's easier for people to remember and it's, it's recognizable. And, you know, this because I, I noticed last year I had to push much more each episode to get traction because every new episode was basically a new uh, platform new names uh, and and I, I guess we, with you I mean cprint is, is is very established in itself now right as a name but I would assume that also using your own names and and, and faces as you say uh, must make it easier to kind of reach out I think I agree with you I think it comes to relatability I mean you yeah. want to be able to relate to something it's yeah. much easier I mean it's the ana analogy here is like what magazine do you want to buy when you're at the, at the sort of newsstand? I mean, do you relate much easier to uh, a face that looks in a certain kind of way on a sort of on a magazine cover, or do you relate just to kind of like text? I mean, one thing creates a stronger relatability and much more sort of instant sort of like, and I think you can't underestimate recognition. I mean, the way you kind of recognize a face or a name, and it sort of kind of creates a sort of you know feeling of um, knowing how to contextualize it. And I think, so I think when you said it, that it's easier now, it sort of makes sense, of course. I mean, it's easier to kind of relate to a name, a person, and have a sort of feeling of ownership and authorship and kind of being able to kind of place it. Like, no, okay, this is the context that I'm ascribing to, or this is the context that I'm signing up for. So I think it... Um, can, sort can of I ask a question on, on, on this kind of... Um... This is not to put you on the spot, but it's just out of curiosity, you know, that is there a risk in over-intellectualizing art? I mean, uh, and, and I think 
maybe that is also part of the challenge that even in in big newspapers you know a, a review of a show is quite intellectual and for for the big you know audience for the you know the general reader of Dagens Nyheter Svenska Dagbladet they get lost you know just by reading the um, the review this is, this is such a valid point i mean this is something i feel like we've been between us we've been talking about almost from the, from the get go is also like because we've been talking i mean i think even even like before we start, started kind of working on art, there's always been this sort of talk about the next generation of art, you know, consumers. When will that big, you know, wave happen? But, and the reason, I mean, people are, more and more people are taking it to contemporary art, but the reason people have this sort of kind of bias against it or this sort of kind of daunting relationship to art is because there's this perception that art always requires you to intellectualize what you're seeing. And I think mm. we always say, but art, like any smart person will say, art is a very personal experience that does not need to be kind of put into words. You don't need to intellectualize to anybody else what you're seeing and asking somebody, what did the artist intend with this? or what are you seeing should not be your stock go-to question. And I think one reason why we're not sort of like getting more and more people sort of invested in contemporary art is possibly because it's alienating. I mean, art are you doing that through print? Are you alienating people? No, we are hundred percent. Like we don't, we would never make any, we would never make any sort of linguistic sort of omissions on sort of quality of language. I mean, that's, that would happen. But we also use pop culture references when we write, we always, always try to make art more accessible and, like, I don't think we ever want to kind of like do poor edits in, in, the, in, the, in the sort of contents, but we also are so aware that our cousins who are not interested in art should be able to want to kind of read our text about art. And you have to, that's why I always say like, why it's totally fine to reference Beyonce in a review. It's like in the exhibition statement for this exhibition, I'm referencing the current film award Art, I mean, film award season with Michelle Yeoh and mm. this actor who was like a child actor in Indiana Jones films and is now sort of, you know, garnering sort of attention for his kind of role in that film, Everything at Once, whatever that film was called. I mean, like, you have to be able to just kind of change the mindset. Like, there is like a stock formula of how you write a, a certain kind of review, reviewer wants or critic wants to write a review. You want to kind of reference a philosopher you want to kind of reference Deleuze or whoever, you know, it, there's always that sort of situation with certain kind of art writers and it really doesn't allow, you know, for it's not inclusive that way and you have to be wary of that. You have to be wary of that with the titles of exhibitions, the length of statements that you kind of produce for exhibitions. The, you don't have to make omissions in the quality of language, but you can also use other points of references and also mm -hmm. let contemporary art overlap a lot more with popular popular sort of culture and references mm. just to kind of make it more accessible and I think that's it comes down to this kind of intellectual kind of like superiority slash inferiority kind of complex where mm. you always if you as a curator want to write a sort of kind of text because you want to kind of pr prove to yourself or prove to your closest peers that you are you know a pundit you know, that you're like intellectually sort of very knowledgeable that's great but i mean i guess you always at the core need to kind of service an audience and i feel like some institutions do that better some curators do that better than others some writers do it much more consciously in terms of inclusive inclusivity than others and but it's a very valid it's a very valid sort of um conversational kind of point because i think art speak which is kind of, I guess, the sort of expression that you would ascribe to this phenomenon of over-intellectualizing, of sort of like using a certain kind of alienating language that is kind of best perceived within the community itself. It's a, it's a, it's a real problem. So, so what can you do? I mean, now you, you have, you're celebrating 10 years with the platform. And when you look kind of into the future in the next five to 10 years, what can you do to further democratize the interest of in, in art but i think you do that i mean i think that's language is one thing of course but i think that's nothing new for us we've always been conscious of that but i think one key that we haven't mentioned is that we had a presence on social media really early on like making content today you have so many 
accounts channeling contemporary art, but when we started 10 years ago, there weren't that many. And it was, a, yeah, but I think that was, that was what we did. I mean, I, I, we kind of, it was, we started when Instagram was still not being professionalized by artists. Artists were kind of using these kind of funny kind of screen names, like using Instagram as this kind of anti-aesthetical kind of like, how do you say, release kind of outlet situation. Where yeah, you, you still had a kind of a Tumblr for your own. Kind of, yeah, I mean, yeah, it just yeah. wasn't professionalized yet, and yeah. like institutions did not yet necessarily kind of allocate the same sort of resources or personnel to, to it. And I think we said, well, this is going to be a media that's going to be very instant. Um, if we use it and use like a more curated content producing, the same sort of um, content approach, in content making approach we use for the website, but in a more so compact form, it will be instant, it will be immediate, it will be possible to kind of talk about art in a substantial way but in a more accessible fashion that and also using a lot of references to music film literature when we were writing about artists we would always like say this makes you think about this song by this artist this makes you think about that film we were never sort of afraid to kind of like overlap perception and interpretation of art with other kind of more more how do you say accessible sort of expressions of of art um, that we still do in like text we write uh, if we review I, I feel like I make it a conscious sort of thing to always try to kind of refer a lot a lot outside of art instead of just within art uh, so it's not just like this kind of meta art review but mm -hmm, I also try to yeah. kind of find kind of common denominators with other sort of um, yeah. authored works from other kind of disciplines just so that there is that entry into this through something outside of art itself and that's but what we can do is continue doing that and yeah. doing it even more and when we're having a conversation with you like now you brought it up but even if you didn't bring it up maybe the conscious thing for us would be to use the scope in a conversation we're invited to to kind of address it and we have mm -hmm. i mean yeah. I, like, every other conversation i moderated about the state of because I, I have moderated a few talks about the state of art critique or art coverage i feel like it's always like a art speak or this sort of alienating sort of quality of writing and covering art has always been a fixture in the, such sort of talks. So what do you see um, happening with the platform in the next um, five to 10 years? Um, I think we will continue uh, to exist as a uh, platform that is both a physical uh, magazine print. That's been definitely, I mean, at, at the core, I mean, we're still a very small team. We don't apply for funds. I mean, we've never applied for any public money and we so it's it's very self-funded and self-sufficient that way so it, there's limitations Do you not have well. any sponsors behind it or there's no sponsors we've never i mean we've never submitted like a application for funding for the platform in that way i mean if we do an exhibition as we would billionaires i mean the gallery yeah, that's has, different yeah that's different yeah. but for the for yeah. the sort of all the content, um, the content part of the platform, it's never, I mean, it's just our funding ourselves. Um, and I think we'd like to, I mean, it's, it's been possible to do it ten, in for 10 years, so I don't think we will try to change that anytime soon. It's quite nice to be independent that way. It's a nice feeling that mm. everything sort of, there is like a machinery that comes and it begins and ends sort of with you in terms of like making it possible. Um, but we will continue to exist as a magazine print. Um, we already, for the past quite many years now, are doing three to four exhibitions per year. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the scope of the exhibitions is getting greater. Like <laughs> We started doing exhibitions maybe a lot more low-key, kind of like sort of finding more, like finding venues to appropriate for exhibitions where you are the whole machinery yourself, you are the wine server, you are the sweeper, <laughs> you are the producer, you're the curator. And of course, now we might get invited to sort of, you know, bigger context, institutional museum exhibitions where there's bigger machineries that we have to kind of be a part of. And so I would say that the platform will just, it's always been very international in reach from the beginning, but I think the exhibitions are getting more and more international and the mm. exhibitions are another leg of the platform. So I think that will probably see a sort of kind of change in terms of where in the world we are doing exhibitions, I think. And how do you I divide, um, let's say, work between the both of you? 
I, I think that's a really good question. <laughs> I would say that it does shuffle a little bit over time. Ashik is dead in cheeks. I mean, he he definitely pulls. I would say a lot of weight to the project. Um, we should say that there that we are actually three today. I mean, I, we started in the, in the beginning. We were three. It was us two and our cousin, and then for a few years it was just us, and then. Since uh, three years, um, we are also working very with uh, a close friend of ours from years back in time, who's who was always like a very supportive person, like a friend on the sideline. But she she also like in the early years did some work. But I would say that our team is three people now. It's Queen Avalin and the two of us, and we. I mean, the two of us curate exhibitions. Queen Akashik and I do the, the content and writing, both for social media and. Um, the magazine, but we all have jobs and we are all juggling very complex puzzles where mm -hmm. we're all doing very many different things. So it's I think, not to cut you short, I would just like to add that <clears throat> organic is very much a keyword in this project. I mean, there is this idea that we have an office space, we don't, and we don't really have so much like strategy plans, written informal text. I think we just go along. I mean, we we're always in communication with each other, the team. I think we have, uh, we're in touch on a daily basis, what to cover, what artists we're currently highlighting, but um, everything's very organic. I think the growth has been super organic. We're always very committed to the project. It's always a priority. It's always been a priority. I think that's, uh, I mean, even as people having partners or sort of children, I mean, like last Saturday, I mean, I think, me and Corina, we were like texting each other like 11.30. I mean, she has two children. I mean, look, once they go to bed, she's like up editing a text 11.30. I'm editing another text. And we're sort of like texting each other about what to edit. So the commitment to the project and platform has always been so consistent. Then, of course, 10 years is a long time. I mean, there's moments from like, have I done anything in my life committed for 10 years? I mean, like it's like almost mm. like a child or like a relationship that you've been in that has seen different stages and different sort of like shapes over time. But... But I do think there is, it's very organic. We said from the beginning, it only has to be as good as or bad as we are. Like, I mean, if I do this and I want to prove that it's good to you and you're happy with my work and I'm happy with your work, that's a good standard to kind of run by. I mean, we never, because the moment you're setting out to impress certain kind of people that you have like in your mind, like you want this person to validate your work or you want that person to think you're good. It just, it's, it's not a good situation. I think we always want to have a healthy healthy growth by saying let things be organic one day maybe we're a physical magazine if we are we are and the, and suddenly we were and then we were like once we started doing exhibitions we said if this is a good experience maybe let's do it again and then some many exhibitions later we're still doing it and so i think we've always said let's take it organically let's not do too much like we don't have like formal you know like strategies, strategies or plans or like all these documents somewhere in a Google Drive that we kind of, we know roughly what are our core interests. And we also know that you have to remind yourself why you are doing certain things. And some of our core values, I don't think we will never, I don't think we will ever kind of negotiate and sort of budge with them. But there are other things, of course, that we have to sort of, adaptations that we've had to do as the project kind of grows. Now we know that it's, uh, influence comes with, you know, you have to be, you have to sort of like be conscious of influence that you sort of that you can exercise and you have to be sort of conscious about other people's interest in that influence and you can't just like I, I can't just on a Sunday just every Sunday say fuck it it's my Sunday like I'm not getting paid like why do I need to go to show like I would do maybe one Sunday I, I never say that but if I would say it maybe my brother would be fine by saying that one Sunday, I would be thought, yeah, of course you should go work out this Sunday, but we also know that it's a ball in motion, like we, we put something into motion, it continues to kind of run, and you can't just not visit a gallery for 10 exhibitions in a row, I mean, that's, like, you could argue that you should yeah, be able it, it, there, You need commitment, right, as I say. You, but in reality, you need to sort of, people commit to you and you need to commit yeah. to them, and if you commit And it's passion-driven, I would assume, right? Very much so. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean, I think passion is still very key. I mean, we still very much enjoy doing it. Like, still really love enjoy. I and mean, we really enjoy still working with the Instagram account. 
I don't know how many interviews we've done over the years. We're probably talking like hundreds. You still do several studio visits a day. Not a day, a week. That's what you mean. A week. Sorry, I, no, I meant a week. But what I mean is like... It we, happens on a day. No, 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 I, I on do. On a weekly basis. But yeah. what I mean, like what, what you mean is that, like, yes, the, the platform is definitely like, has a much greater standing for every year that we we work. I mean, things are always growing. The reach is growing. The audience is growing. The sort of our also social standings or standings within our art, art situation, also art scene also kind of like, you know, sort of increases as we kind of keep working and keep doing many sort of things. But we always want to service the artists. I think that's one thing. And we always want to service the audience. And that's this commitment. That's the commitment we've, we've made. Like, that's why I would on a Sunday feel like, yeah, I would love to be in the sauna for two hours, but... But it's probably better that I go to, you know, the Art World Art Institute's, mm. you know... Or recording this podcast <laughs> on a Sunday. Yeah, like, but maybe, because that's, that's the, you know, I mean, so, certain sacrifices you need to do. And I think what I was trying to say before but is you that... You wouldn't do it if you weren't still enjoying it. I mean, of course, at the core, you have to enjoy what you're doing. Otherwise, it's really hard to motivate. But I think what I was trying to say before and didn't say so well was, like, like when you have... And in compass influence, you have to consider other people's interests. I mean, it's, it would be easy for us to say, okay, the platform's influential, but this is my time. This is my time. Nobody's paying me to do anything. I get to decide what I want to do with my time. And that's true to a certain extent, but the moment you put something into motion and people put faith into what you, what you say, people sort of ascribe value to your work, you can't just say, you have to consider other people's interests and say, okay, this is not my interest today. This is somebody else's interest, but let's consider that interest today. And maybe there's another day where I can consider my own. And you have to always, you always have to kind of factor an equation with many people's interests. You have to sort of, and I think that's why I do think the platform has still been successful is because it never really turned into like a ashikoshic project or a project that is only about us advancing our interest or growing as growing in standing like we always go back to at the core which is the artist always go back to if the young artists need to be kind of like met met with they will be met with mm. and if if there's like a new platform somewhere artists run in like some suburban space we'll try to go as quickly as we can just to kind of say hey this is a platform that exists you should go and i think that and that shines through i mean that's that's very clear for uh, i mean for someone like me that has kind of followed you throughout you, the years that you. You, you have deep deep genuine curiosity and interest and passion for for art uh, so, so that's very very clear so you can obviously online and uh, the link will be in the show notes uh, the printed magazine where can the listeners find the printed magazine i think the first i mean i think we will be producing our th- Third, um, I think at this point we're making maybe like one special edition per year. The last one is still, I think the first one is like sold out. The second one. There are still some copies at Bonish Constal. I think the one, I, mean, I think the, the second one was distributed at a lot of um, art institutions around Sweden, like Malmö Konsthal, Modern Museet, Bonish Konsthal. I think the copies are. I actually don't have many copies left, so I think, I think we we do or we kind of. We but do. if anybody really wants a copy, I think we have one box left. Oh, the, yeah, the second one. So whoever okay, will be good. Sort of, they can get in touch through social media, and we can maybe arrange that. But I think more or less they're quite. I mean, we do out. make them in a limited edition, so yeah. I mean, it's also intended. I mean, for people to who really, because it, it was a difficult choice whether we should make a physical magazine print of course we love printed matter we grew up with magazine culture we love it but again an idea to create a magazine was that it should be accessible like it should be free like there's no paywall like it's uh we don't do advertising like we want anybody who want to read it should be read it for free all the content is worked on very sort of um diligently with a lot of effort but we want it to be accessible for people so a magazine has a price it's not accessible so the the negotiation was that the magazine should not cost a lot, even though the magazine is like very substantial. I think the first issue was 70 kroners. Nothing is 70 kroners today. The second one was maybe 100, which is still, it was still make for the cheapest magazine you would find at the kind of press stop, which is like the newsstand people would go to most often here. 
Yeah. So, uh, and then we also published some of the sort of features, uh, doubled the features also online so that you wouldn't have to just buy the magazine. So some of the features were also published uh, on the platform. I think we technically started as a physical magazine in our seventh year, I think, or was it eighth? That was in 2020. Yeah, so I think we are on to our third, and I think that's mm-hmm. maybe the pace we can keep up, like one chunky, substantial special edition issue that we work on for three, four months. And then um, there's, of, of course, an interest for the online publication to also kind of grow. But maybe we become like a bi- biannual magazine. Again, everything's organic. So. so, yeah, I also know that we create. You, you have to open up to advertising <laughs> so you can <laughs> finance them. <laughs> the... I guess, yeah. It's, um, it's yeah, hard. Or... I mean, it's like maybe we're making things more difficult for us than it has to sometimes. But when you've been doing something for 10 years, it feels like, okay, it did work 10 years, yeah, but yeah. It has worked out so far. So we'll just continue doing it this way. And let's but. see. All right, guys, I think we need to start wrapping this up. Um, sure. I could go on for hours, but um, uh, listen, uh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, Likewise, thank you. Great to get to know you, understand a little bit more about your background, but also to understand the, the kind of the, the backstory to this fantastic show that is opening at Billionius, March 16th. Uh, all the information you will find in the show notes. Ashik, Kushik, thank you so much. This was the Art Bystander with me, Roland Philippe Kretschmar. See you thank soon. You, thank you so this much. Thank you so much. See you at the show. See you at the opening. Yes, see you at the opening. Yeah. <laughs>